Matthew chapter 22 verses 1 through 33 verses 1 through 12. And Jesus answered and spake unto them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king which made a marriage for his son and sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding and they would not come. Again he sent forth other servants saying, Tell them which are bidden, Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fatlings are killed, and all things are ready. Come unto the marriage. But they made light of it, and went their ways, one to his farm, and another to his merchandise. And the remnant took his servants, and entreated them spitefully, and slew them. But when the king heard thereof, he was wroth, and sent forth his armies, and destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. Then saith he to his servants, The wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as ye shall find, bid to the marriage. So those servants went out into the highways, and gathered together all, as many as they found, both good and bad, and the wedding was furnished with guests. And when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there was a man which had not on a wedding garment, and he saith to him, Friend, how camest hither, not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, and take him away, and cast him into the outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Burkett notes, The design and scope of this parable of the marriage supper is to set forth that gracious offer of mercy and salvation which was made by God in and through the preaching of the gospel to the church of the Jews. The gospel is here compared to a feast, because in a feast there is plenty, variety, and dainties, also to a marriage feast, being full of joy, delight, and pleasure, and to a marriage feast made by a king, as being full of state, magnificence, and grandeur. To this marriage feast, or gospel supper, Almighty God invited the church of the Jews, and the servants set forth to invite them, with the prophets and apostles in general, and John the Baptist in particular, whom they entreated spitefully and slew. The making light of the invitation signifies the generality of the Jews' refusal and careless contempt of the offer of grace in the gospel. By the armies which God sent forth to destroy those murderers are meant the Roman soldiers, who spoiled and laid waste the city of Jerusalem, and were the severe executioners of God's wrath and judgment upon the wicked Jews. The highway signified the despised Gentiles, who upon the Jews' refusal were invited to this supper and were prevailed with to come in. The king's coming in to see his guests denotes that inspection which Christ makes into his church in the times of the gospel. By the man without the wedding garment, understand, such as are destitute of true grace and real holiness, both in heart and life. In the examination of him, Christ says, Friend, how camest thou in hither? Not, friends, Why came ye along with him, teaching us that if unholy persons will press into the Lord's Supper, the sin is theirs, but if we come not, because they will come, the sin is ours. The presence of an unholy person at the Lord's table ought not to discourage us from our duty, or cause us to turn our back upon that ordinance. The command to bind the unqualified person hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness plainly intimates that the condition of such persons as live under the light and enjoy the liberty of the gospel, but walk not answerably to their profession, is deplorably sad and doleful.
They do not only incur damnation, but no damnation like it. Bind him hand and foot, and cast him into the outer darkness. From the whole, note, one, that the gospel, for its freeness and fullness, for its varieties and delicacies, is like a marriage supper. Two, that gospel invitations are mightily disesteemed. Three, that the preference which the world has in man's esteem is a great cause of the gospel's contempt. They went one to his farm and another to his merchandise. Four, that such as are careless in the day of grace shall undoubtedly be speechless in the day of judgment. Five, that Christ takes a more particular notice of every guest that cometh to his royal supper than any of his ministers do take or can take. There was but one person without the wedding garment, and he falls under the eye and view of Christ. Six, that it is not sufficient that we come, but clothed we must be before we come, if ever we expect a gracious welcome to Christ's supper, clothed with sincerity, clothed with humility, clothed with love and charity. If we not be thus clothed, we shall appear naked to our shame and hear that dreadful charge, bind him hand and foot, and cast him into outer darkness, where is weeping and gnashing of teeth. See Luke fourteen seventeen, Verse 14. For many are called, but few are chosen. Burkett notes, This is our blessed Savior's application of the foregoing parable to the Jews. He tells them that many of them, indeed all of them, were called, that is, invited to the gospel supper. But with few, very few of them, was found that sincere faith and that sound repentance which doth accompany salvation. Learn hence that amongst the multitude of those that are called by the gospel unto holiness and obedience, few, very few comparatively, do obey that call and shall be eternally saved. Verses 15 to 22. Then went the Pharisees and took counsel how they might entangle him in his talk. And they sent out unto him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Master, we know that thou art true, and teachest the way of God in truth. Neither carest thou for any man, for thou regardest not the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what thinkest thou? Is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar, or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness, and said, Why tempt ye me, ye hypocrites? Show me the tribute money. And they brought unto him a penny. And he saith unto them, Whose is this image and superscription? They say unto him, Caesar's. Then he saith unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. When they had heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. Burkett notes, Here we have another new design to entangle our blessed Savior in his discourse, where observe one, the persons employed to put the ensnaring question to our Savior, namely, the Pharisees and Herodians. The Pharisees were against paying tribute to Caesar, looking upon themselves as a free people and the emperor as a usurper. The Pharisees were against paying tribute to Caesar, looking upon themselves as a free people and the emperor as a usurper. But the Herodians were for it. Herod, being made by the Roman emperor, king of the Jews, was zealous for having the Jews pay tribute to Caesar. And such of the Jews as sided with him, and particularly his courtiers and favorites, were called Herodians. Observe, too, the policy and wicked craft here used in employing these two contradictory sects to put the question to our Savior concerning tribute, thereby laying him under a necessity, as they hoped, to offend one side, let him answer how he would. 
If to please the Pharisees, he denied paying tribute to Caesar, then he is accused of sedition. If to gratify the Herodians, he voted for paying tribute, then he is looked upon as an enemy to the liberty of his country and exposed to a popular odium. It has been the old policy of Satan and his instruments to draw the ministers of God into dislike, either with the magistrates or with the people, that they may either fall under the censure of the one or the displeasure of the other. Observe 3. With what wisdom and caution our Lord answers them. He first calls for the tribute money, which was the Roman penny, answering to seven pence halfpenny of our money, two of which they paid by way of tribute or poll money for every head to the emperor. Christ asked them whose image or superscription their coins bore. They answer, Caesar's. Render then, says Christ, to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. As if he had said, The admitting of the Roman coin amongst you is a testimony that you are under subjection to the Roman emperor, because the coining and imposing of money is an act of sovereign authority. Now you have owned Caesar's authority over you by accepting of his coin as current among you. Give unto him his just dues and render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Learn hence that there was no truer paymaster of the king's dues than he that was king of kings. He preached it and practiced it. Matthew 17.27 And as Christ is no enemy to the civil rights of princes, and as religion exempts none from paying their civil duties, so princes should be careful not to rob him of his divine honor, as he is not to wrong them of their civil rights. As Christ requires all his followers to render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, so should princes oblige all their subjects to render unto God the things that are God's. Verses 23 through 33. The same day came to him the Sadducees, which say that there is no resurrection, and asked him, saying, Master, Moses said if a man dies having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up seed unto his brother. Now there were with us seven brethren, and the first, when he had married a wife, deceased, and having no issue, left his wife unto his brother. Likewise, the second brother also, and the third, unto the seventh, and last of all the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife shall she be of the seven? For they all had her. Jesus answered and said unto them, You do err, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as angels of God in heaven. But as touching the resurrection of the dead, have ye not read that which was spoken unto you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitude heard this, they were astonished at his doctrine. Burkett notes, Our blessed Savior, having put the Pharisees and Herodians to silence, next the Sadducees encounter him. This sect denied the immortality of the soul and the resurrection of the body. And as an objection against both, they propound a case to our Savior of a woman that had seven brethren successively to her husbands. They demand, whose wife of the seven this woman shall be at the resurrection? As if they had said, if there be a resurrection of bodies, surely there will be a resurrection of relations too, and the other world will be like this, in which men will marry as they do here. And if so, whose wife of the seven shall this woman be, they all having an equal claim to her? Now our Savior, for resolving this question, one, shows the different state of men in this world and in the other world. The children of this world, says Christ, marry and are given in marriage. 
but in the resurrection they do neither. As if our Lord had said, after men had lived a while in this world, they die, and therefore marriage is necessary to maintain a succession of mankind. But in the other world, men should become immortal and live forever, and then the reason of marriage will wholly cease. For when men can die no more, there will be no need of any new supplies of mankind. Two, our Savior, having got clear of the Sadducees' objection by taking away the ground and foundation of it, he produceth an argument for a proof of the soul's immortality and the body's resurrection. Thus, those to whom Almighty God pronounced himself a God are alive, but God pronounced himself a God to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob many hundred years after their bodies were dead. Therefore their souls are yet alive, federally alive unto God. Their covenant relations live still. Otherwise, God could not be their God, for he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. If one relation fails, the other necessarily fails with it. If God be their God, then certainly they are in being, for God is not the God of the dead, that is, of those that are utterly perished. Therefore, it must needs be that although their bodies be naturally dead, yet do their souls still live, and their bodies shall also live again at the resurrection of the just. From the whole, note one, that there is no opinion so absurd, no error so monstrous, that having had a mother will die for the lack of a nurse. The beastly opinion of the mortality of the soul and the annihilation of the body finds Sadducees to profess and propagate it. Note two, the certainty of another life after this, in which men shall be eternally happy or intolerably miserable, according as they have behaved themselves here. Though some men live like beasts, they shall not die like them, nor shall their last end be like theirs. Note 3. That glorified saints, in the morning of their resurrection, shall be like unto the glorious angels, not like them in essence and nature, but like them in their properties and qualities, in holiness and purity, in immortality and incorruptibility, and in their manner of living. They shall no more stand in need of meat and drink than the angels do but shall live the same heavenly, immortal, and incorruptible life that the angels live. Note 4. That all those who are in covenant with God, whose God the Lord is, their souls do immediately pass into glory, and their bodies, at the resurrection, shall be sharers in the same happiness with their souls. If God be just, the soul must live, and the body must rise, for good men must be rewarded, and wicked men punished. God will most certainly sometime or other, plentifully reward the righteous and punish the evildoers. But this being not always done in this life, the justice of God requires it to be done in the next. <laughs>